Jersey is the world. Hi everybody, Chris Gathered here. Welcome to another episode of New Jersey is the world. Your favorite podcast that is an exploration of all of New Jersey's eccentricity. It's history, it's food, it's culture, it's nostalgia, it's personalities. If it relates to Jersey, we want to know about it, we want to shout about it. I want to thank everybody who's joined up over at the Patreon. We've had a great week over at the Patreon. If you missed it, we had an episode of South Jersey is Also the World where Andrea and I invented what I think is the ultimate New Jersey game. And I think when you learn about it, it's going to be played up and down the shore all summer long. Okay, we also had our monthly live stream where we touched on a number of issues, including the uh, person who enrolled in New Brunswick High School, even though she was 29, and the council people who keep getting murdered all over the state, and the way that a big giant plastic helicopter fell from the sky at the American Dream Mall, and Nettie's House of Spaghetti keeping kids out, and Jeremy Schneider jumped on the live stream, and it was an awesome time. We love it over there at the Patreon. This week coming up, we're going to have a deep dive into Weehawken. Our series deep dive always yields unexpected things from that 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 train crash we found out about to Rick Sarone's record that led to his own episode. This week, Weehawken, great town. We talked all about it, and we, we wound up stumbling into a lot of history on the Bebop Baroness, who is one of the most fascinating people I've ever heard of in New Jersey history. So patreon.com slash New Jersey is the world if you want to sign up learn more about it. Now, this week's episode, I've got another interview. Uh, I know that we've been doing a lot of interviews lately. We kind of had an explosion of good interviews come out of nowhere. And over the holidays, they piled up. So we've been getting those out. And just want everybody to know, we're not becoming a pure interview show. I'm going to have more stuff come down the pike for you soon. But this one we're putting out now, we're going to space it. we got a, a, three or four other killer interviews in the queue, um, but we're going to space those out. This one's topical, though. This one is with Jim Brown. Jim is a professor at Rutgers Camden. He's also helping to organize a bunch of the union efforts happening amongst Rutgers professors and faculty right now. And I'll tell you what. I'm a member of multiple unions. My unions have saved my butt a number of times in the course of my career. Uh, Bonaduce, obviously a union member, as is Don. I know Andrea worked at Rutgers Camden for a while. Uh, and, and I can just say it, it's an important thing to all of us. So for anybody who hasn't heard, uh, the Rutgers professors, there's a strike on the horizon. And it's been threatened for a while and it's looking like it might happen. And Jim Brown stepped in to let us know what's going on, let us know the perspective of the teachers at Rutgers, let us know the timeline of things. And one of the things that I say throughout the episode that I think everybody is going to agree with, it doesn't sound like these people are asking for all that much. So it's strange to think about why heels are dug in. It also sounds like for as much as I am a supporter and a fan of Phil Murphy, they're, they're negotiating with people who are leftover Chris Christie appointees, which seems, you know, for the politicians in power to say that they are pro-union, but then to leave in the, the attack dogs of former administrations who were anti-union, a little too convenient, have to call it out. There's ways we need to hold the feet to the fire in this state always. So we get into all of it. We also then get into the weeds about the differences between Rutgers, New Brunswick, and Camden and Newark, and some really fascinating stuff about how the budgets can be broken down in a way that tells stories that might not be 100% fair. 
and how Camden and Newark tend to take it on the chin. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff. The balance of athletics and academics on, on the campus these days. It's really fascinating stuff. There's going to be a bunch of links in the description to different um, resources, things that you should know about, things that are happening, ways you can help, petitions you can sign. And uh, yeah, I'm a union guy. Might be entertainment unions, but they're for real. And uh, support to all my union brothers and sisters out there. And enjoy this one. It's eye-opening. Hi, everybody. Chris Gethard here. And welcome to what I think promises to be a very eye-opening and fascinating episode of New Jersey is the World. Uh, we're joined today. We've got an interview with Jim Brown, who is a teacher at Rutgers University, my alma mater. And I know there are a lot of people who listen to this show who either went to Rutgers, certainly have someone in their family who went to Rutgers. If you are a lover of New Jersey, at the very least, half your high school went to Rutgers. <laughs> if you're listening to this podcast, we all know. Uh, and if, if, if even if none of those things are true, you at least partied in New Brunswick at some point before you were 21 years old, even if you didn't do it. So we all know that Rutgers is the state university of New Jersey. We all know the connection it has to this state. It's, it's part of the backbone of things. What you might not know is that there is a fight brewing at Rutgers <laughs> University. And it's a fight that I think uh, relates to something that a lot of us care about. I think a lot of people in this state come from union families, consider themselves strong union supporters. I think we like to view ourselves as overall a pretty progressive state in a lot of ways that's tied into union support. What you might not know is that the teachers union at Rutgers is drawing some lines in the sand. And the, uh, the negotiations, from what I've read, are coming down to the finish line and might be termed as a little tense in the current moment as we record this in mid-February 2023. And Jim, I understand you are part of those negotiations and might be able to tell our listeners a little bit more about what's going on. Yeah, I can. Um, you know, I'm, I'm part of the bargaining team for the faculty union, which is the Rutgers AAUP AFT. And I'm also president of the Camden chapter of, of that union. So that union um, covers all faculty at all the Rutgers campuses. Uh, I'm, I'm on faculty at the Camden campus, um, but we all work together across all those campuses to organize and to, and to bargain a fair contract for all the faculty. And from what I've read, a lot of what the teachers are asking for seems pretty simple to me. And I have to say, I'm not certain in the surface level of reading about it. And I am, I am a proud union member myself. They are entertainment unions, but they're, they're unions nonetheless. I understand the value of a union and I support unions. It seems to me like not... It doesn't seem like much is being asked for here. <laughs> the, the basic level that I'm reading is $15 an hour, which is a national buzz phrase. Um, that doesn't seem like in New Jersey that should be hard to get over the finish line. Seems like teachers want more clear-cut tracks towards things like promotions and, and more communication on that. Seems like they want language about equity in hiring. These don't seem like controversial opinions to me. And I have to say, in reading about what the union is asking for, I'm a little confused as to what the university is even digging their heels in over. 
Well, that's encouraging to hear that you're confused, actually, because <laughs> it, it, uh, it, it helps keep me sane. Um, sometimes, you know, you're making these arguments and uh, as you mentioned, management sort of dug in and you're trying and, and you tend to begin to question yourself. So I think you're right. I mean, you mentioned $15 an hour. One of the arguments we've made over the last few years is uh, sort of minimum wage for student workers of $15 an hour. We're, um, but at the level of the faculty, um, so just to, to be clear, to sort of give you a lay of the land at Rutgers, which is a really big and complicated place, um, there are a lot of different unions at Rutgers. So the, the union, you know, I am... Uh, uh, affiliated with is covers all the faculty at Rutgers. That's full and part-time faculty. Um, and um, but there are a number of other unions that um, the staff members work with. So and we and we organize alongside them. Um, the university doesn't always make it easy for us to organize alongside them. They like to keep us separate in separate boxes, and they like to bargain all these contracts very sort of separately. And I can talk more about actually how they're they're trying to keep the kind of full-time faculty and part-time faculty separate, because that's a really important part of our fight too. But I think you're I think you're right that so at the level of just to speak to the sort of faculty fight, I think you're right that we're not asking for anything crazy, particularly given the amount of money spended on things spent on things that are not part of the, the mission of the university, not part of the teaching and research mission of the university. Um, I, you know, I am a sports fan. I'm a soccer fan. I'm a, a, a recovering NFL fan who's, who <laughs> fled to the Premier League. And uh, I'm a huge baseball fan. I'm originally from Pittsburgh. So I'm a Pirates fan, which is, you know, not the not the greatest place to be all the time. Uh, but, you know, so so I say this as a, as someone who follows sports and is is interested in sports. You know, the, Rutgers is sinking hundreds of millions of dollars into an athletics program that continues to lose money. And that's a decision that they have made. Right. That's a decision they've made. Um, an investment they decided they want, wanted to make. They joined the Big Ten a number of years back. There's, and a lot of money has been poured into that effort, into coaching, into facilities. And, you know, when, we, when the union brings this up, the president, President Holloway, will often say that, you know, well, we just have a difference of opinion. I think that athletics are important for telling the story of the university. And I think some people don't. And I actually don't think that's where the disagreement is, because I think in some ways he's right that that the sort of public facing part of the university is maybe very much about things like athletics. The, the question really is, you know, why is it so easy to cut hundreds of millions of dollars in checks to athletics and so difficult to cut very much, much, much smaller checks for support of things like faculty, staff, and the sort of learning conditions uh, and working learning conditions of students, which are the working conditions of faculty. Mm -hmm. And it's really about the, making decisions about if there are limited resources, as they say, that's another thing we tend to disagree about. There are sort of, there is money. Rutgers is a, has, has millions and millions of dollars in reserves. Um, actually, it might be in the billions. But they, um, the, the, it's about the choices that the administration is making and what they want to support and what they don't want to support. So, you know, to give you a couple of examples, I mean, we're talking about, um, Part-time faculty at our at the university teach a lot of classes at, at, at Rutgers, right? So the difference between someone like me who's lucky enough to have a tenure track position, I'm, I'm a tenured professor in English at Rutgers Camden. Um, you know, 
I know every semester I'm going to teach X number of classes. I'm going to be expected to do Y amount of research. I'm going to be expected to do Z amount of service. That means serving on committees and kind of helping make the university run. And I know that that job is there for me um, in a way that the part-time faculty do not. Some, some universities call these adjuncts. You know, we call them part-time lecturers. Those folks learn maybe a week or two before the semester starts how many classes they have and they don't have benefits and they don't have health care and they're usually running from campus to campus to teach so they might teach writing courses at Rutgers they might also teach at Temple and Drexel and uh, or the new school or any number of, of places in New York so one of the things we're fighting for is a, a more or less precarious contract for those folks right that's a really important thing for us um, and that's something the university has fought really hard and that's because it's much cheaper for them to hire part-time faculty and not give them benefits and healthcare. Um, and that's part of the business model of many universities unfortunately and then another piece of that sort of precarious uh, worker population is grad student grad student workers so grad students at Rutgers and um, and alongside them, also I should talk about postdoc uh, workers are, you know, the, again, the people that make the university run. They teach a lot of classes. They grade lots of papers and exams. And right now they don't make a living wage. Um, and that's the only argument we're making. I mean, this goes back, Chris, to your initial comment. Like, it doesn't seem like a crazy thing to ask for a living wage for grad workers. And it's not something that they have been at all receptive to. Uh, they have when we when we put proposals across the table, the way I describe this to our members is, you know, we we virtually put uh, a Microsoft Word document across the table and they turn on track changes and they strike through everything in that document and they say, no, we're not going to do any of this. And that's their counter proposal, essentially. And that's kind of where things stand right now. So, you know, there's lots of things to talk about this contract. And I tend to I, I just want to say, you know, I'm going on a long time here, but I do, I want to say, you know, the reason I got involved in, in labor organizing at all was because I learned that our union is fighting for, for people like part-time lecturers and grad students. When I got to Rutgers Camden eight, almost nine years ago, I was a proud union member and I paid my dues, but I, I thought our union was primarily about salary, fair salary increases for faculty. And I thought that was important, but it wasn't something I was necessarily going to devote hours and hours of my time to because we're, for the most part, we should talk about equity in a second, but for the most part, we're relatively well paid. And I didn't want to spend time on, on those things when I felt like there were other more important things to do. But our union is about much, much more than that. It's about fighting for um, a, a better Rutgers for students and staff. And it's about you know, an equitable distribution of resources. And that's why I'm part of this fight. And it's been frustrating to be up against an administration that says things like they want a beloved community, but doesn't seem to be acting to sort of support those values. I also want to say, as a graduate of Rutgers, I can speak personally to the fact I was there from 98 to 02 in New Brunswick. And professors versus athletics was a battle line that was drawn then 25 years ago. Um, there was famously a very fiery professor, Professor Dowling. I think Professor William Dowling was his name. He's part of this group called RU1000. And 
thinking of the timeline then, if anybody's followed the history of Rutgers and Rutgers athletics, you know, 98 to 02 was this very precarious, precarious stretch where they had sunk a lot of money into the athletics program, but it hadn't become the Brian Leonard, Ray Rice, 2006 football magic season yet. So you didn't start seeing that return on investment. And all the professors then were going, what are guys, what are we doing? What, what are we doing here? Like we can't have classrooms full of broken equipment as you pay for a football team that doesn't even get any wins. Now the basketball team's winning. That's great. The wrestling team has produced some national champions. That's great. I mean, women's soccer, exciting. Like it, it is exciting, but to me, it feels like membership in the big 10 theoretically is, should be about just as much about connecting with the other professors from those great research universities as it is playing them in sports. feels to me like that influx of money in a perfect world would go towards making teachers feel stable and happy and taken care of classrooms that are at, you know, not falling apart and therefore giving students from places like Camden, Patterson, Newark, Trenton, Plainfield access to a state university that's top shelf. And also maybe thinking of some of the great public high schools in the state, maybe attracting kids from the schools like, Milburn High and some of these other nationally ranked ones to go Rutgers is a viable option. It does seem to me like the logic is if if athletics makes money and that money just feeds more going into athletics, well, that's just becoming a monster that eats itself. And how does that offer long-term improvement to the state? And uh, yeah. again, it feels like simple logic. Yeah. Unfortunately, ath- athletics is not making money is the, is the big issue. Right. So and this is actually something that we've learned even more about in the last couple of years because of some really, really good reporting by New Jersey journalists. And I can share some of those, some of that work with you, you know, after we talk here. But what we've learned is that the, 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 the sort of normal person on the street, myself included, before getting into higher ed and, and seeing how university budgets work, just assumes that if a football team is on television every Saturday, if they're part of the Big Ten, there's obviously like piles of cash coming in. There has to be, right? <laughs> it's the only way this could possibly work. But what's actually happening at Rutgers is pretty shameful because what's happening is that Rutgers is taking money from the Rutgers budget. That is the, the budget that makes the entire place run. And funneling it to athletics. Now, in some cases, that money is being handed over there in terms and being called a loan to athletics, but everyone knows that athletics can't pay it back. And so those loans will eventually be forgiven. We are talking, I'm not exaggerating when I say we're talking about hundreds of thousands or hundreds of millions of dollars. Okay. Hundreds of millions of dollars this is happening with. And that's because there are really only a handful of, of like football programs in the country that can make money. Right. And, and everybody knows this, athletic directors know this, uh, university presidents know this. And so the question is, you know, how much money is the university willing to, to fork over to kind of keep that public relations thing going? Because, you know, a, a major university without a, you know, a division one football program is, w- would be an oddity to us. But Rutgers is subsidizing athletics at a rate that is, the president, President Holloway, has said is unsustainable, more so by like a factor of 10 or more than other Big Ten schools. Right? So what's happening is we all would assume that money's coming in the door from athletics, but it's the opposite. 
money's going out the door. And the problem is, again, if we, as a, if, if the administration wants to make the decision to support that because either they have to because they've signed contracts with the Big Ten or because they want to because they think it's important, that's that's fine. That's there. You know, those are the decisions they make. The question is, what are the pri- what other priorities right. do there have to be? And, and how do those other priorities align sit next to athletics? So and the, I, I just have to emphasize, I mean, we're talking about you know, the, the, the amount of money it would cost to fund the proposals of the union do not approach the faculty union do not approach the hundreds of millions of dollars that it costs to, to keep athletics going. They are just it's not even close the, the price tag we're talking about. And so so that's the first thing I wanted to say. Um, I, you know, the other thing to think about with um, actually I sort of lost. I lost that uh, a train of thought there, but th- there was something else about athletics I wanted to hit on. I'm sure it will come back. I have. I will also say too. I feel like you are a very gracious person, <laughs> and I can tell this. And you also are someone who is clearly in a leadership position. I don't need to measure my words as much. I'll also say this too. As an alum and a sports fan who keeps an eye on things, Rutgers also got screwed by the Big Ten. Their deal was a bad. It was a bad deal. Uh, when they and Maryland joined, I mean, Rutgers was a pretty pitiful program compared to the history of a lot of the Big Ten programs. So the deal was something like you can join, but you won't get an equal share of the revenue for something like the first 10 years. I think it was 10. Um, whereas USC and was it uh, USC and UCLA just announced they were joining the Big Ten last year, and it was you are a full member, right? At, you'll, you'll get equal money right out of the gate. Rutgers will not see a full share of the money until after these California schools that just joined up because the deal they signed was basically we'll let you in, but you're such a sad sack version of what we do that you got to kind of just eat it for years before you can get an equitable. So that doesn't help the situation either that they signed a deal with the devil, basically saying like, you now have to, you now have to have locker rooms and stadiums that are up to the standards of the big 10. You have to have, the ability to have TV cameras uh, and TV crews have access to you at the level of the Big Ten, and you will not for a decade plus make the money that other Big Ten schools make. So, again, that's a deal with the devil they made, and I'll just say on my end, and granted, you're here, and I've said I'm always on the side of the unions. That being said, they made that deal with the devil, and if faculty suffers that means students suffer so they've got to figure out how to balance out that deal that's that shouldn't be everyone else takes it on the chin because again granted it's theoretically a good thing to get into the big 10 but if it's going to take 10 years to see the benefits then that 10-year window you got to be responsible for the choice you made it's not something that you guys should have to deal with in your classrooms on a daily basis that's absolutely true and i want to say you know the point you're making is interesting if you think about sort of how that all runs downhill in, in, in equitable ways. So first things first, we can all agree that, you know, this is a pro New Jersey podcast, of course. So <laughs> we, we, and we, do, we don't want Jersey as a state to sort of be treated inequitably. But in, the, in this case, as you point out, it was. Um, but then what happens when that commitment is made is 
those inequities sort of cascade downward. And downward is a, a really useful metaphor here because it goes sort of north to south. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what happens, right? Who, who gets the shaft in this situation? Well, all of Rutgers. But who gets the worst of the worst when it comes to the shaft? Well, Newark gets, gets, a, you know, gets it worse than New Brunswick, and Camden tends to get it worse than everyone. And that tends to so that 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 stuff trickling downhill. I'm, I'll continue to be the gracious person you, you describe me as, Chris. <laughs> that stuff running downhill um, means that all those inequities that are baked into the system of not just Rutgers but New Jersey and New Jersey politics in general gets perpetuated. So, for instance, you know we've been talking about this sort of commitment made to athletics, but there, but you know the inequities of Rutgers are such that if you go to uh, Rutgers Camden or Rutgers Newark, you, as a student, you leave with a Rutgers degree. You're at, you're at Rutgers University. Um, there's nothing specific on your diploma about the fact that you were in Camden, Newark, or New Brunswick. We all know, you know, that, that folks, folks will kind of go out of their way to not say this, but we all know that New Brunswick is the flagship campus. We do know that, right? But we also know that if everyone's paying this intuition. And we also know that the faculty are held to the same standards when it comes to promotion and tenure. I, when I got here in um, 2014, you know, I, was, I had to write the same book and articles to get tenure as an English professor at Rutgers Camden than that I would have at Rutgers New Brunswick. It goes through the same exact process of review from my peers and administrators. So I'm a Rutgers faculty member. But I can tell you I'm here on Rutgers Camden's campus and it doesn't look like New Brunswick. (laughs) And those classrooms in Camden don't look like New Brunswick. And Newark is the same, right? You know, again, it's perhaps, you know, slightly, slightly better than Camden, but definitely much worse than New Brunswick. Um, And those inequities extend to things like faculty pay as well. So the average faculty member at um, on the tenure track in Camden makes 30% less than the average faculty member at New Brunswick. That's a huge number. It's a really big number, 30%. And those inequities remain throughout your career because every time, say, you're up for a promotion, your your raises are based on that lower number. And during our last fa- contract four years ago, we were able to bargain a an equity process whereby faculty members in Camden could say, look, here's who I am, here's what I've published, here's what I teach, here's what I do every year, um, and here's someone at New Brunswick that I think is comparable to me, and here are the two salary num- numbers, and Rutgers should make this right. And that was the process as it was supposed to work. And what the university did instead was uh, bring in a consulting firm who created an algorithm that would better judge the distinction between faculty, so an algorithm instead of humans. And then what they did was they said, Let's say that I put in a faculty, put in an equity proposal, which I didn't. But let's say that I did. They say, Jim, you're comparing yourself to New Brunswick faculty, but that doesn't make any sense. You're better compared to this other person who's in your department in Camden. So you can see right away that those (laughs) big inequities get perpetuated because they're comparing me to someone who's also underpaid. And they did this to people across Camden and Newark and essentially you know, to, and, and, and to, to make it make matters even worse, the folks who did benefit from the equity pay process happened to be in New Brunswick. Happened to, so, yeah. 
up into New Brunswick. And those folks did get equity raises. So the, the, the program designed to fix inequities ended up perpetuating inequities. Let's just set aside the fact that they didn't review any of those equity uh, applications for, for multiple years. So people are still waiting to hear back on their equity uh, raises. So much so that the, the union had to organize a lawsuit against the university. Um, multiple uh, uh, female faculty members across all three campuses got together and put together a, 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 a lawsuit against the university because a number of these inequities are not just across campus lines, but are also across gender and race lines, won that lawsuit. And we now have a better pay equity process. And the, the people who the plaintiffs in that case also won, you know, won settlements. But why are we in a courtroom? Right. Like, why are we forced to hire lawyers and get, go to a courtroom to do this over multiple years? And so and that's because we have an, an administration that has taken that posture. And I'll, I'll make one more point in this regard. You know, that posture is coming from a president who uses words like beloved community and who talks about the importance of understanding, you know, um, a liberal arts education in the state of New Jersey and, and working with cutting edge research faculty should be accessible to any student in New Jersey. These are all things that our president says. But the person who sits across from us during bargaining sessions is a person who was worked for and appo was appointed by Chris Christie. So that's the situation we're up against. The, the infrastructure. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, you, I'm, hopefully you saw the political article, the recent political article about this, I but did. You know, when a new president comes in, they have the power to say, here's who I want at the table representing my interests and my values. He has the power to do that. And he has chosen not to do that. And I want to say to you, the governor's name is getting dragged into this. Governor Murphy's been a guest on our show. We feel very honored that he was on the show. I'm a fan of the governor. I spoke at a re-election event for the governor. I like him. I think we are lucky to have him. But I do also know part of being a Jersey person is you call out stuff when you see it. You hold people's feet to the fire. To say publicly that you are intensely pro-union is one thing. To leave Chris Christie's appointees in place... When Chris Christie came of age in an era of Republican governors that famously attacked teachers unions, that seems like you're trying to have it both ways there. And for as much it's love true. as I have for Governor Phil, it's not a it's it's uh, it's a very it seems like a thing that's very easy to call out. And part of why it's easy to call out is because it seems like it would also be very easy to adjust. To have a non-Christie appointee to, you know, negotiating with teachers' unions seems like the most simple ask. Let's clean the slate and get someone in who wasn't appointed by a generation of Republicans that were so viciously anti-teachers' union. Yeah, I mean, and I'm not letting Phil Murphy off the hook in any way. He has the power to put pressure on the president of Rutgers University, but it is President Holloway's, you know, role to step in and say, look, I am a progressive. I, I am stepping in to take over this historic institution. And I think, and I have a new vision for, and he has said this, I have a new vision for labor relations at Rutgers University. He created a new office of labor relations, but the person he put in place was, he sort of kept all the pieces. And it's not just labor relations, it's all levels of administration. The people that worked for the previous president are largely still in place. And but you're right. And I don't know, you know, I listen when I can to 
to Governor Murphy's weekly to radio show. I think it's weekly where he takes calls um, from citizens of New Jersey. And this and this came up during a question like, what is why is this happening? And he was clearly frustrated um, and clearly being as measured as he could or had to be or whatever in his words. It seems that he is not happy with how things are going, he has said. But I agree, Chris, that he does. And I think this is an issue at both the Rutgers administration level and at the state level. People want to have it both ways. If you're pro-union, if you're actually pro-union and you're pro-labor, then there are ways to step in and make differences. So structural changes that make it so that when we come to the table, we're actually collaborating with management to make this a better place and not constantly in an adversarial position. I mean, you should know that like, even just getting session bargaining sessions scheduled is a battle. <laughs> and that, you know, this is my first time on the bargaining team. So I'm seeing it up close and personal for the first time. I've, I used to hear these things. I used to get emails about these things. Um, but now I see it, you know, we, we didn't have any sessions in January because there was sort of bickering about how many people could be at the session. We like, we want the ability to bring lots of members to sessions to participate in those sessions. We have thousands of, I think our bargaining unit, something like 8,000 people across all three campuses. And they're saying you could bring 15 people to the table. And we're saying, no, our 8,000 members have to ratify this agreement. We'd like more people to be able to see what's going on. They have no interest in that. So, They'll do things like say, well, until we can agree on how many people can be at the table, we can't have any sessions. And, you know, and when we do meet, it's for two hours a week over the course. I mean, we've been without a contract since July and we've made almost no progress. We put across the table in July a proposal for raises for faculty um, that, as you mentioned, is not a crazy proposal. And it took them six months to respond. And that response was two percent a year for four years or, you know, we're bargaining a four year contract. So, and that's a pay cut given six and a half percent inflation. Right. So these are the things we're up against in a, in a state that is ostensibly blue, right. And pro labor. Um, and I think it's, it's frustrating and, and really eye opening to see it up close and, and personal. I want to speak to a point you made before as well, when you talked about, New Brunswick, you know, Newark, the Newark campus looks like the redheaded stepchild of the New Brunswick campus and the Camden, the Camden situation. It's like, well, they make that kid sleep out in the backyard. Like <laughs> it really does feel like that, you know? Um, and I just want to say you were pointing out before, you know, teachers, faculty, staff members get squeezed more at the Newark and Camden campuses. And I also, I have to imagine a situation that that creates where, those people would be more interested in moving on, getting poached by other universities that might offer other positions. And I have to imagine that the attrition rate, the turnover is going to be more severe at Camden and Newark. You're going to lose your best professors from those campuses first. Meanwhile, New Brunswick is getting spruced. I remember even after 2006, I went down there after Ray Rice brought in all those, after all those jerseys got sold, I said, man, College Ave looks nicer than it did six or seven years ago. And you sit here and you go, man, that New Brunswick campus, I have to imagine it's a little more priority on, hey, we got to make sure the construction gets finished there on time. 
we got to make sure that things get spruced up. We got to make sure these classrooms look nice because we can't have all the people from Penn State coming through and seeing that. We can't have the Michigan people who all live in the city now taking the train down for the game and seeing what Piscataway looks like. So let's fix that up. And that means Newark and Camden get backburnered. I, I have to imagine. And another thing. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, the other thing that's important. The other thing that I think is so important to point out about that is like, look, I grew up in West Orange. It's 10 minutes from Newark. I went to New Brunswick. I have roommates from North Caldwell. Do we really think, let's start really talking New Jersey and class class divide, racial divide. Kids from Montclair, Livingston, Cedar Grove, you know, West Orange, the Caldwells. These are Newark suburbs. This is Essex County. They go to New Brunswick if they're from the nice white suburbs. And I say that as someone who that was my case. And I have to imagine there must be an equivalent thing with some of the Philly suburbs that you send your kids up to New Brunswick instead of camp. So by the university establishing this financial divide and by the university not having equity, you also are inherently saying the students going to Newark and Camden are probably kids more from Newark and Camden Absolutely. and they are the suburbs that surround Newark and Camden. So by the university playing games with the finances on this, well, they're actually playing with the educations of the inner city people. And then we all sit here and wonder how do the cities of New Jersey not quote unquote bounce back the phrase we all hear about New Jersey cities. Why is it taking so long for them to bounce back compared to some of the other areas? Um, you know, Philly and New York, Brooklyn turned around, Philly, so many areas gentrified. Why is it taking so long in Camden and Newark and, and, you know, all the other cities? And well, this is part of why it's a very clear cut way that the state, uh, cause you know, at the end of the day, president Holloway, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong. That's a state employee right there. Just like Greg Schiano, the football coach is, I think the highest paid state employee in the state of New Jersey. Um, <laughs> the state allocates their money in these ways and it's choices that are being made and it underlines and solidifies a class divide and a racial divide. It's really important to point out. If you want to put your money where your mouth is, you can put some money into Camden and New York yeah. right well, out of the gate. And as our, I mean, I'm our South Jersey rep here on the, on the podcast, Jim. And so I'm someone, I grew up five minutes outside of Camden, my high school, 15 minutes from it, maybe. And most of my friends who went to Rutgers went to New Brunswick. I went my I did undergrad at Rowan, so I'm a little different. But but I worked. Uh, this is how I know Jim. I wor- I was a grad student in Rutgers Camden in the English department, and I taught as a graduate student worker for a couple of years there. And obviously, like my sample size is small. I only taught a handful of classes, but I wrote a lot of recommendation letters for students, and maybe half of them were wanted to transfer to New Brunswick. They wanted to go to the, you know, quote unquote, better campus and half were just leaving Rutgers altogether. And they were students who were local, who were at Rutgers for the first year or two. Um, and were doing that so they could go to a, again, a quote unquote, better either campus or university. Um, and I saw a lot of that in only the two years that I was there. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so what Andrew's pointing out is that that attrition that you talked about, Chris, is not just about faculty and it's not just about staff, but it could be about students as well. Um, sorry, I, I jumped in when you're. Oh no! Please, say, please, please. I just want to talk about a couple of things both of you brought up that are really important. So, first thing I want to say is that that sort of you, you called them financial games, and I think that's a good way to think about it. It's worth stopping for a second and understanding the kind of how those things work. 
on the ground for people like me and for students say in, in Newark and Camden. So Rutgers uses a model of budgeting. This is, this is about to get a little bit um, boring and in the weeds, but I promise it'll pay off. Rutgers uses a system of budgeting called RCM, Responsibility Centered Management. What that essentially does, you can think of it this way. We talked about Rutgers being one big university, right? There's just different campuses for the same university system. That's the way we talk about it. That's the way the president talks about it. That's the way we all want to think about it. But the budgeting system doesn't think of it that way. The budgeting system says each campus is responsible for its own budget. And what that means is, and another thing to remember about the State University of New Jersey, and this is the case across the U.S. since essentially Ronald Reagan, there's essentially been a massive defunding of public education at, at all levels, right? Tax cuts are a defunding of public education. So we think that our tax dollars in New Jersey go to Rutgers, but the amount of money that goes from taxes from, from the state legislature to Rutgers is, is tiny. So our budget, I don't know the percentage. I, I would bet it's less than 20, um, that 20% uh, of the budget that comes from taxes, right? So that means that the budget comes from tuition. A student comes to Rutgers and pays, a, pays tuition, and that's what funds the university, which means that more students in the door means more tuition dollars means higher budget. Now that you can tell right away how this is going to work out for Camden and Newark, which are smaller. I mean, Camden especially is like, you know, factors of I forget how many smaller than even Newark. It's a small campus. And that I'll say more about this in a second is the, is the selling point of Camden often that you can come and get a records education and work one on one or five on one with research faculty, people who are getting massive grants from the NIH, people who are publishing books and articles around the world. OK, so RCM says if you want more money for your campus, you have to attract more students. So what that ends up meaning for a small campus like ours is we are, according to Rutgers University, always every year, 25 to 30 million dollars, quote unquote, in debt. Where does that debt come from? Well, we get a bunch of tuition dollars. We take that, those tuition dollars and then we pay the bills. You know, we pay faculty salaries and we pay the electricity and we pay the bills. And at Rutgers Camden, at the end of the day, after you do all that math, we're about $7 million up. So we're in pretty good shape. But RCM, this budgeting model says, well, hold on, there's this thing called cost pools. Cost pools are the way the administration says, we need money for central administration. We need money for initiatives, for whatever the president's and president or chancellors want to spend it on, and they suck back some money. So that $7 million uh, revenue goes to 25 and $30 million debt, right? And that happens at Camden every year. And that number becomes a reason not to fund things that are in Camden. Right. Now, this doesn't make any sense to me as someone who says, if we're one big university with multiple campuses, let's just treat the budget as if we're funding the whole university system. Why is Camden on the hook? Because it only has, say, five, 6,000 undergrads. I don't know the number. Don't quote me on that. So that's the way this, so that sounds, that's in the weeds of budgeting, but there's, you know, race and class issues bound up in that budgeting model. A budgeting model is a statement of values. It's a statement of what you value and what, what Rutgers has chosen to value is the flagship, the, the public facing, as you said, sort of whether it's the boardwalk that you can walk down during football games or whatever, right? There's, there's every time we turn around, there's a new construction project in New Brunswick. There's a new program in New Brunswick. 
those sorts of things mean that everybody gets the same diploma, but doesn't everybody doesn't get the same experience. And those things can they happen at the level of really boring decisions about you know money and budget, but they happen at the level of deciding what gets built and what doesn't. And the the the, the thing is like. Why do people come to Camden? Why do people come to Rutgers Camden? Why do people come to Rutgers Newark? Well, when I talk to students here, it's because it's small. They actually come here because they went to New, they went to New Brunswick and they realized I have to take a bus to get from my 9 a.m. class <laughs> and when it ends to my you know 11 a.m. class. Um, this place is huge and intimidating and it's not for me. But if I go to Rutgers Camden, I'm going to see Professor Brown walking across the, the across campus and be able to say hi and he's going to know who I am and that's what people like about Rutgers Camden and that's what the university puts forward in its brochures but it continues to punish the campus for being small and I'll say one other thing that we get punished for and then I'll stop which is <laughs> about four or five years ago Rutgers put up put together a program called Bridging the Gap I was just just about to ask you about this. I'm so glad you're going to okay. talk about this. Sorry to interrupt you. To yeah, no, I'm glad that we're on the same wavelength. Bridging the gap said the logic of bridging the gap was there's a group of students in New Jersey who can get into Rutgers, who have the grades to go to Rutgers, but cannot afford it. They can't afford the tuition, and so Rutgers said if your family makes sixty thousand dollars or less every year, you can come to Rutgers Camden for free. And if they make $100,000 or less, you can come for about half. In, in the span of a year, by changing nothing else, nothing about admissions requirements, nothing, right? Just the fact that, you, that people didn't have to pay as much money and in some cases pay anything at all. This place, the undergraduate population doubled instantly. Doubled? Doubled. And that meant huge changes. I don't remember, Andrew, if you were here when that change happened, but things like the writing program had to double, right? We need, we need double the number of first year writing classes. Now that tells you two things. It tells you that the inequities we've been talking about are stark, right? That means there is a group of people in New Jersey who are ready, who, who have the grades and the ability to go to college and not the money. So bridging that gap was great because it let all those, it gave all those people access to, um, a world-class education. And it was only at Rutgers Camden when it was first rolled out. Um, in the years since, Rutgers Newark and Rutgers New Brunswick both have this. Oh, I didn't realize same that. Program. Yeah, okay. so they have their versions of this same program, okay? Now, we'll go back to that budget model. These people are arriving on campus. They should be arriving on campus. They deserve a Rutgers education, but they're not bringing tuition dollars. Right. Because of the way the system that Rutgers built works. So now we have a larger population on campus, but we don't have the tuition dollars coming in to cover that larger population. And that's when the big gap starts to grow about like who, how much debt I'm putting for people who are listening. Picture me doing air quotes, how much debt Camden is in, you know, those debts are the are a function of. Rutgers Camden extending access to a group of people that didn't have access before. So we're getting punished for what the land grant university of New Jersey should be doing. Well, and something I didn't realize when I, I I've talked about bridging the gap on the show a couple of times, because on the outside, it seems like a great program. And in a lot of ways, I think it is, but 
I didn't realize it was something, and I should have, that started at sort of like Rutgers, the Umbrella University. It wasn't something that was like born from Camden specifically, because then it really is like, it looks great, but we're putting all of the bird, the burden isn't a great word for it, but, but the burden of it on Camden to start, which is completely unsurprising. And yet still, I just found myself surprised by it. And I have to imagine too, and again, I haven't been there. You can tell me having been there, Jim, but the idea that this is used as a way to sort of widen the financial gap and the, and the way that they say there's this debt, I have to imagine some of the same leadership that is now going, oh, well, sorry, you're in all this debt, are the same people who will proudly take a victory lap on what a nice thing they did for the underprivileged. <laughs> I'm sure that in one press release, they're probably patting themselves on the back. And then in the next moment, they're telling you, oh, sorry, you guys are in huge debt. Stop complaining. That's absolutely true. I have to recommend a book because it, it will show you that this pattern in New Jersey is being sort of repeated in other states in the country. The, the book is called Broke, The Racial Consequences of Underfunding Public Universities. And the model they use is, is actually is Cal, the California system. And they talk about, I think the two campuses they focus on are Riverside and Merced. And if you're from Jersey and you went to Rutgers and you read that book, you will just begin to replace Riverside and Merced with Camden and Newark. It's the exact same story playing out in the exact same ways. And the, the book talks about what you just said, which is these campuses become um, the things that administration holds up. Look at, look at the amazing things happening in Camden. Look at the access we're providing to students and, uh, and, and citizens of New Jersey. Like these people get to have this world-class education with research faculty. And in that those same people are saying, look, budgets are, you know, when I look at this budget, like we can't expand services and access and infrastructure in Camden because there's not money coming in. So those, those, like you said, those same people are saying both those things in different situations. It's extremely frustrating for faculty who are fighting for equitable treatment of, of staff, students and faculty in Camden to hear those two things coming from the, the same, the same people. And um, I mean, it's what this, you know, again, to, to sort of bring it back to the contract fight, it is what this contract fight is about. I, we are not the most, <laughs> college professors are not the most sympathetic, you know, audience. And in fact, for most people, for a lot of, I shouldn't say for most people, I, I think you talk to some people and they say like a, a faculty union, like, like college professors are, have the cushiest job in the world. Like, you, you know, they get to like read and write and think and you get summers off and, you know, like, look at this. Like, how could you possibly have anything to complain about? And so I do, I think we're up against that often. Um, and I think maybe, you know, uh, you can, maybe you can relate like Hollywood uh, <laughs> unions perhaps are, are perceived in the same way. Because here's the thing, right? Like I'm in the actors, union, I'm in the Screen Actors Guild. I'm in the Writers Guild East. Writers Guild of America East, if people want to look it up, is actually a pretty rabble rousing union uh, by modern day. They are the first ones that asked the AFL CIO to kick out the police unions. Like the point being is this though, when it comes to things like you're speaking to, to the entertainment unions, I'm aware I'm not a coal miner being <laughs> in my unions. I'm aware I'm not an auto worker. I'm aware that I'm not working with machinery that could make me lose a limb. I know that. And I have great respect for people who do those jobs and need those unions probably more than I do. But here's the thing that's true between the teachers union dealing with the state, entertainment unions dealing with Hollywood studios, auto workers dealing with car company executives. Here's what we all have in common. 
the people who make the money, they want to work you till you die and they don't want to give up a dollar if they don't have to. The money people are bad in all those industries. And that's what we have, all, what we all have in common. And I know that that is a very juvenile rudimentary sentence that I just said. People who can generate sick amounts of money are broken in the head and the soul <laughs> to be able to figure out how to get that much money in one place. You have to be a monster to be able to do that. And you're the exact type of monster that then doesn't turn around and go, now let me share it with the teachers or the auto workers or the actors who are coming in for two days who aren't series regulars. They just say, who's the person who's going to be grateful to be here? And can I just squeeze them until they work them? Can I convince them to work until they die while I make all the money and they have to schlep it out harder? That's true in all of these industries. It's true. And so, yes, absolutely. That's the case. And in the case of, I mean, you know, in the case of, faculty at, at Rutgers or faculty in any higher ed situation, you know, what we try to communicate to students, we're doing this a lot now as we organize toward um, a, a potential strike in the near future is, you know, the, that our working conditions are their learning conditions. So if we're treated poorly and if we're treated inequitably, that's a, that means that they get treated inequitably. And students in Camden are extremely receptive to that message because all it takes is to walk into a classroom building and take a look around. I mean, the building that I taught in last year, um, the air conditioning went out for a long stretch of the summer. Okay. So the people that work in that building had to deal with that. The staff that have to work in that building, students are for the most part aren't around, but here's the kicker. It was out for so long that the sound baffling panels that are installed in those rooms, the glue melted and the panels fell off of the wall. So I'm talking about Armitage. Uh -huh. okay. So <laughs> those are the kinds of things. Yeah, those are, well, yeah, nice <laughs> monument to brutalism. But uh -huh. these are the kinds of things that happen in Camden that I do not think are happening in New Brunswick. And without the people who do have some power and a union that does have some leverage because we're organized, much more organized than we were, I would argue, 10 years ago, we can be a voice, not just for ourselves, but for students and not just for the tenured and tenure track faculty, but for those who are on the non-tenure track who are on renewable contracts and for those who are part-time and don't even have benefits in healthcare. So what I see us doing is yes, of course, there, there's, there's an argument to be made for the, for the tenure track faculty to have equitable raises and to, have, to be paid equitably. But that's just part of a broader argument about equity for, in my case, Camden. But the great thing, the great thing about organizing Rutgers faculty is that we organize all three campuses together. When I'm in union meetings, I'm alongside colleagues in New Brunswick and Newark. They know exactly what we're going through in Camden. The Camden is the first thing out of their mouths when they're, when they're talking about our, our contract fight. So as we start to like get closer to a potential strike. And you know what we're doing right now is organizing a, a strike pledge, asking our members to pledge to vote in a potential strike vote that's coming. As we organize that and have these, these conversations, these are the ways I try to talk to people about it. Because I think, you know, pe like I said, people hear faculty, Rutgers faculty strike, they have a picture of um, tweed jackets, right? Mm -hmm. And they have a picture of like what a college professor is. 
And um, the, the argument is about something much, much bigger than that. And if it weren't, I, I wouldn't probably be involved in it. <laughs> and Jim, you know, you were saying before, like self-deprecating of like, I know people don't view a college professor in a tweed jacket as having a hard life, but I think we've done a good job today of saying, because look, even for as nice as New Brunswick is compared to Newark and Camden, I was a student there. I know the city has greatly improved in the 25 years since I went there. And some of that's because of money brought in, but it's still a city. It's still a place where the year round residents who aren't students there, let's look at, you know, the new Brunswick public schools. I don't think anybody is saying, I don't, th I don't think they're showing up top ranked in any of the lists, you know, like uh, out there. And, and this is not to disparage the city, but I think you've done a good job point being of saying the way that the way that, faculty get treated that rolls downhill to how students get treated and their experience and hearing how much attrition there is kids in Camden and Newark wanting to jump to New Brunswick kids at all the Rutgers campuses maybe wanting to jump to other universities I sit here I go community colleges and county colleges they're a great thing I'm not disparaging them it's not what Rutgers is mm -hmm. people shouldn't be treating Rutgers Camden like a two-year college with the hopes of jumping that's not why you get in hearing you say that the state's initial impetus was let's take uh, people who couldn't afford college and put them in Camden. And then it's also held against the Camden Camden in some ways. It reminds me, we had a conversation on this show just a few weeks ago with an environmental act activist up in Newark named Maria Lopez Nunez, who talked about how in North Jersey, every time they need a sewage plant, stick it in Newark. Every time you need the airport, where's the airport go? Newark. Well then, planes are flying over your residents' heads every three minutes. Well, what do you get at? You get job creation. Okay, well, we can work minimum wage jobs for people who fly into an airport that you don't you say is a New York airport and they don't spend any money in the local community. It's a very similar attitude in certain ways that the state kind of wants to stick a lot of... They want to say the solution to a lot of problems when it comes to things that are underfunded it's just we'll stick them in the cities and then claim that that gives some benefit to the cities but build the system in a way where you can pull the rug out from under that at a moment's notice when it when it benefits your version of the conversation as far as funding so i think you've done a good job of showing how it's not just that and i think the big question for anybody who might come across listening to us speak on this show is when do we anticipate this strike might go down if it does how can people who want to support the unions be ready to show up and support in those moments, whether that's online, whether that's in person? What can those of us who, who see this, especially, I mean, the number one thing, let's underline it for everybody. If there's anybody out there, because people do, when it comes to teachers unions, we know people do go, they like to grumble. I support unions, but man, those teachers ask for too much. We hear that. First of all, no, they don't. No, they don't. I don't not preschool teachers, not college professors, not anybody in between. The things we ask of these people in dealing with our kids, dealing with the mental health of our kids, dealing with the physical well-being of our kids, we they don't they don't ask too much. Let me just say that's my opinion right there. But um, the number one thing people are going to respond to is when they hear that you still have a Chris Christie appointed negotiator. <laughs> Any even on the fence of like I support unions, but the teachers union I have some questions about. As soon as they hear you're dealing with Christie appointed people, they're going to go. Part of my French, fuck that. How can I help? They're going to know you guys are being taken for a ride. So when they ask that, when they say fuck that, how can I help? What's the answer that that uh, you and the other union leadership wants wants the people of New Jersey to know? I appreciate that. So first things first, um, 
there's a, a petition uh, for Rutgers alums circulating. I'll send that to you all so you can, you know, put that out on social Absolutely. media. That's a that's an attempt to make sure that alums know what's happening in the contract fight. It lays out the, the challenges we face in bargaining. So that's one thing that can be done. The part-time lecturers who I mentioned um, earlier, who are the folks who are the most precarious in our workforce. So grad grad student workers. Um, we're lucky enough to have the grad student workers in our same in the faculty contract. So if you're a grad assistant or a teaching assistant, you have health care, you have a contract, um, you're, you're still not paid a living wage, which is what we're fighting for, but you at least have le a less precarious job. The part-time lecturers, the adjuncts, don't have that, and they're fighting for health care. They are fighting for equitable pay. They're fighting to be paid you know, a living wage. They have a strike fund that they've already got up and running because they're prepping for a potential strike. And if if we go on strike, they're the ones who will, of course, get hit the hardest. So contributions to the part-time lecture strike fund would be another thing to be thinking about. Um, I think talking to friends and neighbors and, and colleagues about what you're hearing and 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 it's like helping us spread the word about sort of inequities baked into the system about things like athletics. I really think the athletics piece is interesting because there's, there is just this assumption that athletics is a cash cow. And in this case, it is the opposite of a cash cow. It is a, it is a money pit and it will not go away. And again, if the administration wants to continue that, there's, they'll get no argument for me, but they have to find money at the same time <laughs> to support the research and teaching mission of the university. Call your, call your politicians. Like if, if Jersey politicians hear from constituents that this is not like, this is not acceptable, then Phil Murphy's going to hear about it too. Be ready to come out on the picket line and support, you know, faculty and, and staff on the picket line. There's never, there's never been a strike at Rutgers. It's never happened. It's an old place. It's an old university. <laughs> um, and, you know, the only way we are seeing right now to move management at the table, the only way we're getting them, we see to get them to take us seriously is to organize toward a strike. That means getting people on board with the strike, which is not easy, right? It means potentially calling a strike vote. It means like all of these things mean, you know, the best way to avoid a strike is to really organize hard for one. And that's what we're experiencing right now. It takes a lot of time. So, you know, spreading the word, getting uh, informed. Our, our union website has lots of information about the proposals we've put across the table and the responses we've got. That's another place to go. But we really need the people of New Jersey and, you know, even the New Jersey boosters who are part of the <laughs> diaspora like around the world to really be behind the people that make this university run. And that is the students, the staff and the faculty. And it is absolutely not administrators. Um, and we need we need that support. And it you know, I was just last week over at Temple uh, on the line with their grad workers who are on strike who make $19,500 a year and seeing those people fight in the way that they are and seeing the, the administration there take away their health care and take away their tuition remission is insane. insane, but also inspiring. And, you know, mm -hmm. it, it got me more and more ready to, to, you know, be on that line for us if, if I have to be. Well, I'm happy to help spread word via this show as an alumni. I can say, um, 
this all tracks from from conversations that have been happening for decades. It's time to solve it. I'll also say this as a big time sports nerd who loves college basketball and likes seeing Jersey basketball teams in the tournament. I love it's not athletics versus academics. It is saying there's got to be some middle ground there. It's got to also pointing out to just Rutgers sports fans in a basic way. If you like what the basketball team's doing, don't let that be used as a smokescreen to convince mm-hmm. you that everything's hunky dory behind the scenes. Like that's just an. Also keep in mind, every sports team that's successful there is also a PR campaign claiming that the university doesn't have this stuff under the surface. So keep all that in mind and be ready. Be ready to get out there and march, everybody. And uh, especially if it happens during the spring semester when it's nice and warm. uh, (laughs) Yeah, we get sunny days in uh, some sunny days in March, you know, be ready to be out there. And look, everybody, don't just go, Mark. Don't just go march in New Brunswick either. Don't be. Don't underline the problem. Can we also not underline the problem by having only people go march in New Brunswick? Let's march in Newark and Camden too, please. Chris, this is a I just consider this a personal invitation. If we're on strike, there's a there's a place for you on the line here in Camden. Listen, I I uh, being a North Jersey guy and being a lame suburbanite, I haven't spent nearly enough time in Camden. That's right. So I will happily take you up on it. And, All right. Uh, I know there's also a whole, a whole bunch of great food down there. I haven't had either. So, yeah, there's donkey steaks right up the road. There's plenty to <laughs> plenty to see. Anthony right. Bourdain said it's the best cheese steak there is. So you can't doubt that guy. Anyway, good luck to you and everything. <laughs> please keep us, uh, please keep us up to date on stuff and anything we can do to continue to help spread word as things happen. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners are going to be ready to uh, get the tweets out and take a trip to the picket line when it's time for it so thanks for taking the time with us today thanks so much jim thank you i I really appreciate it thank you for listening to this presentation of new jersey is the world new jersey is the world is chris gethard nikki bonaduce don finelli andrea quinn carson cop and mike d new jersey is the world is produced and edited by carson cop mike d and andrea quinn you can find us online at New Jersey is the World and on Instagram at New Jersey is the World. Also, please feel free to reach out and leave us a voicemail by contacting the home office of New Jersey is the World at 973-780-4660 in regards to anything show or New Jersey related. Please subscribe and listen to more episodes of New Jersey is the World on your favorite podcast service. If you're looking to join our extremely opinionated and Jersey-ish community, head on over to Patreon.com and search for New Jersey is the World. We have merch, which you can find at BelowTheCollar.com after searching for Chris Gethard. Once again, thank you for listening to this presentation of New Jersey is the World. New Jersey is the World, where New Jersey is the World.